0: What is cultural apologetics? How should we engage the culture in which we live with the gospel of Jesus and how should we go about defending its truthfulness? Today on the show, I bring on uh, Dr. Paul Gould, who uh, has a PhD uh, in philosophy from Purdue University, as well as a master's in the philosophy of religion and ethics from Talbot School of Theology, uh, which is at Biola University, of course. And uh, again, we discuss uh, his book, Cultural Apologetics, which you can find in the uh, description below, the link to the the Amazon page, so you can uh, get that and soak it in. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. Um, if you enjoy the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review, and as always, uh, if you want to support Help Me Believe, follow the Patreon link in the description below labeled Support, Help Me Believe, and become a patron. Thanks so much, you guys, and I hope you enjoy the episode. <music> Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. Uh, My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my special guest to you. He is uh, the host of, I mean, he is the author of the uh, recent book, Cultural Apologetics. His name is Dr. Paul Gould. Uh, uh, Dr. Gould, how are you doing today, sir?
1: I'm doing great. How are you doing today, Hayden?
0: Man, I'm doing good, and I'm excited to have you on. I've had some of your colleagues on, and and both actually recommended you to me. But I was already kind of familiar with who you are, uh, as I went to the seminary that you used to teach at, and, um, I, and I got the, got a hold of the cultural apologetics book. And man, I'm excited to have you on.
1: Awesome. Well, sorry you had to, you know, hang in there with my colleagues, but I'm sure that.
0: <laughs> no, they were great. They're nice guys as well. Um, yeah. but uh, for the audience that may not be uh, familiar with who you are, I thought it might be helpful if you gave us a brief introduction.
1: Yeah, okay, so um, yeah, my name is Paul Gould again, and uh, let's see, so I've been married over 25 years, actually, but uh, you know, I got married really young, obviously, um, and we've got four children, ages 20 down to 12, so one in college, one a senior in high school, one that just got his driver's license, and one that's in middle school, so our lives are full. All right there yeah um let's see i like to run although my knees are bad and so currently <laughs> i'm barely walking i am walking but uh, i i keep hurting my knees um, but i like to think that i like to run um and i like to read obviously philosophy and theology and things like that and apologetics and then uh let's see i was going to tell you so, oh yeah and this year i um, i'm a visiting scholar, actually, I was telling you, Hayden, yeah. beforehand. but uh, I travel Monday, Thursday, I'm in Chicago this year, and I'm um, working on, the, the official title is Neo-Aristotelian Accounts of Divine Creative Activity, but basically, I'm just really interested in the doctrine of creation, and I'm, I'm interested in how to make sense of the concrete material world that is the universe, and then my other work has been on the abstract world, and then I eventually want to put them together. Uh, so that we can make sense of a metaphysics of creation. That's kind of what I'm working on. Uh, but we can talk more about it. But that's that's kind of my life right now: is hop on a plane Monday and go on home on Thursday.
0: Yeah. So you 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 mentioned Aristotelian, and so I am a student at Southern Evangelical Seminary, which is broadly uh, uh, subscribes to a Thomistic philosophy, which of course yeah. would be Aristotelian as well. Are you in the same camp, or are you around there, or? I'm around
1: there. Um, I have friends that teach at Southern where you are. And I never think that um, what they say, they just know way too much about Aquinas. I don't know enough about Aquinas to know um, if they like what I have to say. But yes, broadly in the Aristotelian tradition, the mystic tradition, especially when it comes to understanding concrete material reality that is the universe. Um, I'm actually a Platonist when it comes to the other realm. That's, yeah, that's what I uh, was yeah. getting
0: from what you were mentioning that's just that's a second
1: a, ago. An oddball there, but that's, yes, yes.
0: So mm-hmm. a concrete Aristotelian and an abstract Platonist, is that a good way? That. Yep, something <laughs> like that. Well, tell us uh, a bit about your testimony and kind of lead up to how did you get interested in apologetics?
1: yeah so i grew up in the church uh and i the lutheran church but pretty much a nominal upbringing where i just missed the gospel um throughout uh, elementary school and high school and then I, I went to miami university in oxford ohio and within the first couple of weeks they have a fairly active um it was called campus crusade for christ or crew at the time um fairly active organization and so two guys came knocking on my door that freshman year and I was basically freaked out because I shared the gospel in a very, really succinct way with me. Um, actually, for the first time, understood, oh, it's a personal thing. You know, there's a decision that I have to make and things like yeah. that. But there were basically two things that um, after they had shared that kind of stuck with me. One was this question, why are these people that are so normal looking, because I had this stereotype, yeah. you know, so into something that's so abnormal, namely God. But then really the second question was the one that, as they say today, you know, was the pebble in my shoe. Um, what if they're right? And so that's what began this sort of journey. It took me another year um, of kind of – I actually went to an apologetics uh, class as a non-believer. I didn't know that was not normal. Yeah. But a friend who was down there in the same um, – same dorm said hey we've got this class and we're exploring evidence and so i went to that and was just blown away with you know every week the professor would bring a stack of books and it would be on the deity of christ or the evidence for the resurrection or does god exist and i can just remember being blown away and so basically um about a, a year into this so my uh, the summer after my freshman year i was actually reading my bible at the time and i was reading revelation And and finally it was sometime that summer i said you know what I know this stuff is true, and I was just trying to wait till I, I don't know, had my wild college time or something, and I just realized it was a moral decision that I needed to bend my knee. And so that's when I became a Christian and kind of jumped all in and got back that sophomore year and began being discipled and kind of really went for it in my faith. So that's kind of how it all all began.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Um, So I I like to ask this question because I think it's – A lot of people experience it, and it's a good question that uh, I think needs to be discussed more, but was there ever a time whenever you had some serious doubts uh, about the Christian faith, and if so, uh, how did you go about handling that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I certainly took that year to wrestle as a freshman in college, um, where You know, something that I had grown up with but just never given much thought to, whether or not the gospel is true, I really pressed that question of truth that first year, that freshman year. And so I looked at the evidence for the resurrection, and I looked at the evidence for God's existence, looked at the evidence for the deity of Christ, all those things, and kind of resolved in my mind, oh my gosh, there's tons of evidence here. So when I became a Christian then, um, it was a pretty— uh, thorough, like I mean, I I had spent a lot of time wrestling with the intellectual stuff, and so I would say my only doubts since then would be things like this: whenever there's a, a loss or a difficult time, it's more existential. Like, God, do you care for me? God, do you, do you care for the deep desires of my heart? Do you care for you know the things that I care about? So, an analog of the problem of suffering and the problem of divine hiddenness, but not one that caused has caused me to wonder in disbelief, but one that has just caused me to doubt in my own heart. Wait a minute, does God care for me? And things like that. So that's those have been probably the things, and I think actually since we're, since you asked this, sure. I think it, it's rooted in um, growing up not experiencing genuine, unconditional love in my life. And so you know even into my Christian uh, experience, bringing those doubts with me. So the intellectual stuff has been, and I'm kind of wired that way, so I've always been pushing intellectually, um, but for me it's almost like I need to bring my experiential knowledge. I, I know God fully loves me and God is fully present, but you know, pushing back against the empiricist, gotcha. naturalistic world that tells us that God isn't here and God doesn't care and the universe is immense and we're just on a tiny dot in the middle of nowhere, you know. but no, wait a minute. Okay, I have good reasons to think God exists. I have good reasons to think that God loves me and I can walk in faith in that. So that's No, a I think bit.
0: that's a, I think that's a very important distinction and I guess I hadn't um uh, um expressed it as uh, succinctly as you did there, but um it it kind of seems like whenever you have um you you have the knowledge like I know God exists, but sometimes it's hard to believe he exists right here right now with me in the midst of suffering and doubt and things like that. Um but but it's it's good to have that intellectual knowledge that whenever you have emotional doubts like that you can fall back upon and say, Well, even though I feel this way, hold on a second. You know, I know you know, whatever, the Kalam cosmological argument or some intellectual argument for the existence of God and then of course the resurrection. And so I know this is true and so my intellectual knowledge can perhaps help me in this emotional situation. Would you say that's pretty fair? Yeah.
1: I've even had – so recently, Recently, you know, we've, we have experienced a loss in my family, and I really had to go back to, okay, what do we believe about God? What's our theology say? And then I kind of mentally checked through it. You know, God is active in my life, and, you know, God cares for me, and so mm. on. And so as you mentally walk through that, it just allows me to lean into God in my doubt as opposed to sort of run. And, and I'm always – I've always struck – in, in Matthew 28, you know, right as Jesus is getting ready to give the Great Commission there, um, it's so interesting, all the disciples come to the, the mountain there, mm-hmm. and then it says, but they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Some of them you doubted. Know? Yeah, and, and the word is they vacillated, you know, okay. but the point is they were there, yeah. and so that's always a good reminder. Okay. I can have my doubts, but my doubts don't push me away from God. I move into God in my doubts. And so, yeah, just mentally going through that helps to keep that head-heart thing connected. So, yeah, well well said, well summarized, for
0: sure. Yeah, that verse has always struck me as so odd now that you bring it up. Like, I, I, what were they doubting? It's hard for me to put my – you know, he's, like, right there.
1: Right. Well, yeah, <laughs> they doubted. What about us? I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Trouble, yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit here. Uh, That was a wonderful conversation, but we're actually here to talk about the book, uh, Cultural Apologetics. (laughs) Of course, we can talk about whatever we want. But uh, again, the book's called Cultural Apologetics. Uh, You'll find a link in the description. I highly recommend it to the audience. But tell us uh, kind of uh, uh, where the idea came from and kind of what the purpose was here and and maybe what's unique about the book.
1: Yeah, so... um, Okay, so... uh, after graduation from college, uh, worked for a couple of years, and then both my wife and I, who had become Christians through Crew, so our lives have been drastically changed as college students. And so we had a real heart for, for college students. And so we eventually joined staff with Crew and began to work with college students ourselves, ourselves as campus ministers. And so it was there that I began to wrestle almost immediately as a campus minister with this question. How does the gospel get a fair hearing? I mean, you know, truth is on our side. I've found the truth. We know the truth. But yet in the academy, in the classroom, Christianity is maligned and misunderstood and mocked. And so, so there's that disconnect. And so for, for the last two decades, I've been wrestling with that question. How does the gospel get a fair hearing in our culture? Fast forward, now I'm, you know, through a, a, a seminary degree and a Ph.D. in philosophy. Now I'm teaching at, at a seminary. And one of the classes I was asked to teach is, well, I, I actually suggested it and then uh, <laughs> to it but anyway, it was a class called cultural apologetics. And this was about five, six years ago. And of course, as any educator would do, you know, when you don't know the topic that you're supposed to teach on, you Google it, you know, well, yeah. not really. That's what I did. And um, this was, you know, five, six years ago. And I Googled the word, what is cultural apologetics? And basically I, I found very little. I mean, there's been a lot since then. So what I did Again, the fundamental question, how, does the, how do we have a conversation with our culture so that the gospel gets a fair hearing? But what I ended up doing then at the seminary was every year I'd select seven books that I was interested in. Cause it's all about me. I'm not really just joking, but uh, you know, I'd select seven books that I'm interested in on the gospel, on apologetics, on culture. And, um, and then I would teach through them, and then I would swap them out with seven new books. And about after four or five times of teaching this course, I began to, to have my own view. Okay. This is what I mean by cultural apologetics, and I figured I should probably write a book on it because it was something that I'm deeply passionate about, this question of helping to show others that Christianity is true to the way the world is and true to the way the world ought to be. So that's kind of the genesis of why. Sure. So I write it for my kids. I write it for my kids' kids. I write it for the sake of the gospel, both now and in the future. Um yeah, that's the backstory.
0: Well, it is a wonderful book, so thank you for uh, writing it and and doing the hard work that it takes to write a book like that. So I appreciate that. Um, now, you said you finally came to a definition of cultural apologetics, so I'd like for you to share with us what that definition is, and specifically how it differs from plain old apologetics. Or uh, you know, okay. I don't, I don't know, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
1: That's good, so okay, so typically you know when we define apologetics as you as I know you know Hidden, um, it would be something like giving a rational defense of the gospel or sure. something like that um, and of course, cultural apologetics is part of that stream, but what I do is I actually claim <clears throat> well in the book I claim a new lane for cultural apologetics yeah. so here's the definition that I arrived at, and then I'll tell you why I give it a new lane. So the definition, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like we're working to reestablish the Christian voice, the Christian conscience, and the Christian imagination so that the gospel will be seen as true and satisfying. Yeah. In other words, so that the gospel will be seen as true and good and beautiful. Yeah. And so there's the working definition. And within that, there's this idea that, that we are part of culture and that we're shaped by culture. So as human beings, we make culture, and then the culture makes us. Okay. And not only that, that we're part of culture as fully embodied human beings that are rational to be sure, but we're way more than that, right? We have minds, we're, people t- call us emotional animals, narratival animals, imaginative animals, um, moral animals. And so taking all that together, what I wanted to do was carve out a lane where we are concerned with what does it mean to live in a culture and how does the gospel get a fair hearing in culture, and how does even go- the culture work? And so I talk about how cu- the cultural apologist works both upstream and downstream, or globally and locally. Upstream, you know, we work at the level of all the culture-shaping institutions of our world, because that's really where culture changes. And so if we want the gospel to get a fair hear- hearing, we have to be present in those culture-shaping institutions. And in the book, I pick up three. Uh, one with respect to truth which is the university mm-hmm. one with respect to beauty which is the arts and then one which with respect to goodness which is the city which includes a whole host of things and then so we're, we can, we're concerned about the upstream but we're also concerned about the the downstream or the local you know how is the gospel being received at the level of individual lives or groups of individuals and so so that's what's going on where um, some people distinguish like rational apologetics or moral apologetics or imaginative apologetics. I take all of those and kind of enfold them into a view that I think is consistent with what it means to be human and humans that are, are part of the culture that they make and therefore are shaped by. So that's a little bit about um, what it is, I guess.
0: Yeah. It's, it seems like cultural apologetics, as you define it, uh, takes um, or at least could work with. You know, whatever flavor of apologetics that you want, whether it be evidential, classical, presuppositional, moral, uh, rational, whatever, it's like, here's your definition of cultural apologetics and all those things can fall under it.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm pretty eclectic that way. Um, And it is meant intentionally to um you know hey look god has made us in all these ways and we have all these resources available and so i'm trying i'm basically trying to broaden i mean i think we're so good historically at what we might call rational apologetics sure you know giving arguments for the faith to show that it's reasonable of course Uh and of course Rightly so, because Christianity has been maligned as irrational for, I don't know, a while. (laughs) But here's the thing. There's so many other objections that we've got to address, too, that have to go to the goodness of Christianity and the beauty of it as well. You know, is... Are, are Christians hypocrites? Uh, you know, is Christianity really good for the world? What about the God of the Old Testament? Is he a moral monster? And on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Uh, does Christianity really satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart? All these are questions that we have that aren't strictly rational. Of course, they're they're partly, they're, they involve our minds, but they're broader than that. And so really it's not an either or, it's a both and and everything. Um, but yeah. yeah, you're right, neutral with respect to evidential versus classical yeah. versus that.
0: Yeah. yeah and, and- and I'm all for the rational and the evidential um, approach to apologetics, you know, forming syllogisms and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and I'm still young, but when I was even younger, uh, you know, that's all I really wanted to talk about, yeah. like, oh, the, the, because it's surprising whenever you grow up, you know, nominally Christian or something, you go, "Holy crap, it's actually true!" And I, and you can, you know, prove it. You can define prove however you want, but prove it. Um, And so you get pretty obsessed with that. Um, I certainly did, I know a lot of uh, young apologists continue it to as well. Um, But the more you stick around, and I'm obviously no veteran by any means, but I've kind of stuck with it over these last five years or whatever, it didn't take long for me to realize it needs something more than this. Um, Just as a a few recent examples, I had a dialogue with an atheist who asked me, uh, even if Christianity is true, so what? And I thought, what do you mean? So what? Like that—that's the point. The point is, it's true. But what he really meant was, how, why? He said, why would I believe it? But I, I didn't climb out on it. It's like, well, you should believe it because it's true. But what he meant was, why would I subscribe to it? Why would I follow it? Uh, why would I let it affect me and change my life, uh, even if it was true? And I thought, you know, I was pretty unprepared to answer that question. Um, and you know, and another one I've gotten is, even if Jesus rose from the dead, so what? I'm like. <laughs> What do you mean? So what? If you, but uh, again, it's missing something there, There's, or at least that's what that highlights for me. These these yeah. these modern or uh, recent objections that I get, they don't have to do with syllogisms. Um, it's hard for me to even define what it is that's missing. But I think your book is aiming at that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, so it's it's really interesting. Um, in, so I use the language, and I assume we'll probably get there, but I use the language that we live in a disenchanted age yeah. in the book, trying to assess and understand what is, the, you know, what is our culture like right now. But what's so interesting is that man can live as if God doesn't exist, right? We can live everything within the so-called imminent frame of this world. You know, the intelligentsia tell us there's nothing beyond this world. All of our lives can make sense in reference to this world. And so what happens, and I've noticed this too, it's interesting that you picked up on this. But I can remember, and I share in the book about how when I was teaching philosophy as a PhD student at Purdue, um, you know, I would see progress. We'd go through the, the classic arguments for God, right? Yeah. Give, give all the arguments, cosmological, teleological, ontological, moral, we'd even, you know, do the problem of evil and the divine hiddenness, and everyone would almost, to a T, move from either agnosticism or unbelief, if they were there, to some form of belief. And I'm like, awesome, progress, you know, philosophy can help. But they do exactly what you said. They just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, "Cool, God exists." Woo. Let's go party, <laughs>
0: which is bizarre so, to me.
1: But, yeah, yeah. So there's the disconnect between okay, the ontology, the furniture of our world just got way more complex, and the so what question. And so, a cultural apologetics takes all that and connects it to the deep longings of the heart, you know. And so, part of what we're doing in cultural apologetics is awakening that longing for truth mm-hmm. and goodness and beauty which of course has its source in Christ. And so so it's just pushing beyond that so what question that you, you get and I get so often too yeah. because we live in a disenchanted world and helping people because we need help to connect the dots
0: Yeah, so uh, I want to get to that. i got a a follow-up question for you on that. But first, uh, let me say thank you to our patron supporters. Thanks so much uh, for your generosity. Um, It's because of your generosity that I get to put out free material like this, as well as uh, other material that aims to spread and and to defend uh, the truthfulness of Christianity. And if you believe in that mission and you want to support Help Me Believe, you can do so by following the Patreon link below and become a supporter for as little as a dollar a month. Um, With your support, you'll get access to early release, live Q&A, Chapter and and book reveals on those uh, self-published books I put out. And at the $5 level, you can get access to the uh, bonus segment. Um, Today's bonus segment will be five more minutes with Dr. Paul Gould. You won't want to miss that. Uh, Again, just follow the Patreon link in the description below. uh, Labeled support, help me believe. Again, thanks so much, guys, for your support. And uh, let's get back to Dr. Gould. So I think the problem that we are addressing could be, um, uh, to give it a name, a word would be uh, apathetic. Don't you think? And um, you know, I get this a lot. It's and uh, I say this and and not as like a ooh go Hayden, but some of my best friends and they've just been my friends since high school and stuff like that. They they are atheists and uh, um you know those are just my best friends. But anyway, they're more or less, you know, if I ask them does God exist, it's the response is almost like, who cares. <laughs> You know what yeah. I mean? doesn't bother. You know, if he exists, he clearly doesn't want anything to do with me or something like yeah. that. Or, you know, like we were just discussing earlier, if Jesus rose from the dead, so what? I've never seen him. Um, you know, he did that a long time ago. It doesn't have any effect on me today. How do we move people? Because whenever I, um, you know, became convinced that God really does exist and the gospel isn't just a good, you know, bedtime story, but it really did happen. I mean, it just radically changed me almost immediately. My desires immediately changed. And of course, you know, uh, I believe that had something to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, not something to do, everything to do with it, excuse me. But, you know, how do we move people past apathy? Because I just, I don't know how to motivate people that well, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> You're right um, that we, uh, we suffer as a culture in a disenchanted world with sloth. Which is the spiritual equivalent of apathy? It's actually one of the seven deadly sins, so that's not good. Um, but <laughs> it's a chanted world, you know. We we there's more of that, right? Every it's just you know the rise of the nuns, n o n e s, you know that I don't care about God or or the apatheist who doesn't care about the question of God or you know Alex Rosenberg, the chair of the Duke Duke um, philosophy department, who wrote a book in 2011, an atheist guide to reality. Um, and, you know, in the first couple pages he says, you know, we've already settled the God question. We don't, don't care about the God question, let's just figure out how to live in an atheistic universe. And, of course, as by the time you get to the end, the answer is take drugs if you can't handle it, you know, like Prozac and things, Gosh. but, uh, yeah. So we live in this world, so I think the first thing, so let me just say two things here. Sure. Um, one thing that I've done, I've noticed, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll go and speak around the university campuses around the country. And a lot of times people are asking me to give some, um, you know, an argument for the problem against the problem of evil or some argument for God or whatever to build a case for Christianity. And typically I used to just go and give the standard philosophical, engage the reasons, engage the syllogisms. I love, I'm a philosopher. Of course, I love all those things still do. But what I've started to do lately is to do all that, but to, but to couch it, And I, but I say this, I say, I say, will you just for 20 minutes consider the possibility that God is actually better than you think. And that for 20 minutes, will you consider the possibility that God is, that, that Jesus Christ satisfies every longing of the human heart. And what I'm really trying to do there is change their posture from a posture of closed mindedness to a posture of openness to the very possibility of God. Um, Because the apathy in our apathy, I think we feel as if we're already justified in our non-belief. So that's the first thing I would say is I've noticed that in, in, in doing that um, and just challenging them to be genuinely open, people are a little more awake to these deep longings of the heart. Um, the second thing, though, I'd want to say in terms of how to help people make that connect is we do we – do, um, and I argue for this in the book that we want to uh, shock people into engaging with reality by awakening longings. And so sometimes that awakening or that initial stirring will come from arguments. That's And that's obviously God has made us as rational animals who seek and long for truth. But there's so much more. So I talk about how God has given us a conscience that is on a quest for goodness. And we can simply ask him questions like, what is it that you want? And the answer is usually I want to be happy, <clears throat> you know, but then the question is, well, We all want to be happy, but yet it remains so elusive. So what's going on there? Just explore that. Or the one that I think is so strategic in our culture today um, is the longing for beauty that we have and that God has given us an imagination, which is on a quest for beauty. So shocking them into engagement with reality by talking about stories in our culture that we all resonate with. Because my thesis is, and I unpack this in the book, is that the things that we resonate in the stories that we read or the movies that we watch – I think that the things that most resonate with the deep longings of the human heart are just those things that actually connect with the, the gospel message, and so we can use the, as one person would put it, the aesthetic currency of our age, to uh, shock people into a, you know awakening these longings that they have, ultimately for God, that they just might not be mm-hmm. aware.
0: Yeah, I want to get to the beauty question, but first I want to ask you about this uh, disenchantment. Uh, so a word that you've uh, used a couple times here in the interview, but also one that I found often used in the book. Uh, what do you mean by disenchanted, and how did the world become so disenchanted today?
1: Yeah, so um, the the primary question to get at the answer of what I mean by disenchantment is, what is our culture's dominant way of perceiving? And the answer is, disenchantment and so what that means is that um, people describe the world as ordinary or mundane or everyday yeah but that's actually not the way the world is right it's deeply mysterious it's yeah. beautiful, sacred and so disenchanted way of perceiving is failure to see the world in its proper light as gift Or things like that. And so we live in a world where it's been emptied of her magic. No one sees it for what it is. And so the word I use then, and it's not my word, it's a word that comes from Max Weber, and it's been employed in Charles Taylor's seminal work, uh, A Secular Age, and a lot of people are um, picking up on the term, but that's basically what it means. Um, did you ask, Do you me, okay, then how did we get here?
0: Yeah, yeah sure, how did we become, uh, you know, hold on, because you you said something that was pretty interesting, and I was just uh, okay. having weird philosophical thoughts the other day about something along the same lines, which I often okay. do, but uh, I'm just sitting here, I don't know what I was doing, I may have been laying in bed, but I was thinking about how in fantasy and fiction novels and narratives, we read about mystical creatures and stuff that are so crazy and whatnot, we think, wow, that would be weird to live in a world like that, and then I thought... Yeah, but what the heck is a rhinoceros or what the heck is a giraffe and stuff like that? <laughs> it's like we live in a very weird world and oh. uh and there's so much, you know, magic in this world that it is just bizarre to me that we do really just walk around like this is totally normal. The fact that we exist isn't normal. The fact that we exist is crazy. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I think that, uh, and we can, and I'm gonna let you speak on it. But I think there's something to do with this disenchantment, at least of how we got here, is that, uh, you know, maybe it has something to do with the fact that we think, the fact that we can explain a lot of the mystery, uh, through, uh, uh, you know, mechanistic scientific explanations, somehow it takes the magic out of it or something like that. I don't know, but uh, go ahead. How did we get
1: here? Yeah, how did we get here? So if you go back 500 years, um, this is one of the really interesting things from Charles Taylor, for example, his work, A Secular Age. He says, if you want, if you go back 500 years and just some normal, I don't know, person living on a plantation or whatever, everybody basically held to three views, and the three the three things that pretty much everybody believed were number one. The natural world functions as a sign for the supernatural world. So it, it, the language is that it, the natural world is semiotic, but it just means that it's a sign. It points to the divine. That's the first thing that everybody believes. Secondly, there is this widespread idea that the, uh, the earthly kingdoms reflected the kingdom of God. And then number three, there's a widespread belief that the universe was enchanted. In other words, they held to a sacramental view of the world. So what happened between, you know, the year 1500 and today? Well, there's a political story really quickly. um, You know, there had been religious wars for a long time up till then, and there was going to continue to be religious wars through the revolutions of France and and so on. Um, But so negatively, there is this attempt in Europe to get rid of Christendom and Christianity, positively politically now there was a desire to with the scientific revolution to see um man conquer and understand and tame nature so that's a political explanation there is a philosophical story and i give one in the book i won't bore you unless you want me to um but it has to do with shifting ideas between things like and i'll just list them uh, but i can go deeper if you'd like but things like going from realism to nominalism going from um a more organic view of the world to a mechanistic picture of the world, and then the elevation of an, of a theory of knowledge or an epistemology called um, empiricism. So there were philosophical shifts, but I guess the, the way that's most helpful for me, not just politically or in terms of the philosophy, but is spiritually, I would I would say our descent into disenchantment was a two-step descent, and you just need to think of Romans 1. It began with suppressing the truth about God, and then from there everything else emptied from the world. And so C.S. Lewis has this great little essay called The Empty Universe, where he says basically, you know, we, we began to empty the world. The minute we began to think about the world, suppressing the truth about God, we emptied it of all her magic. And so now, you know, it's just uh, little atoms in the void, you know, and we measure it with yeah. charm and spin and, and mass, and that's about it. You know, there's yeah. nothing beautiful about that story. And so um, I think that's maybe... Yeah, that that's one way to understand it, just Romans 1 as well.
0: Yeah, I got – I don't know. I have confused thoughts about this because, I mean, obviously the scientific revolution and being able to explain things mechanistically is very helpful and useful, and it's been a and – it, and it's it's – um, it seems inherently good, or at least it it can be good. Yeah. But when you and I start talking about magic and enchantment, I can almost hear you know whoever Richard Dawkins or and it doesn't have to be someone you know like him, but other atheists going, yeah, that's the point. We want to take the magic out. We want to take the enchantment out because this sort of stuff gets in the way of us uh it, 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 progressing through this uh, scientific method. Um, you know. how do do you kind of respond to that? Because it's almost like, you know, I don't know what to say to that because it's, to me, it's not, um, mutually exclusive, I guess is the point is that, no, I'm not saying, I don't, I don't mean, you know, magic. And I think in the same way that you do, if you're objecting like, uh, someone like Richard Dawkins or somebody might, is that the point? I mean, kind of how do, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, so Let's see where to begin. Yeah, obviously some some things had to go, right? You know, the the ancient experience of the world is vastly different than the modern experience. We don't believe that behind every tree there's a dryad and behind Mm -hmm. every river there's a river god, right? So some of that needed to go. But what happened is they threw out everything in the scientific revolution. And and here's – the things that were thrown out that that didn't need to go were belief in teleology or purpose, design – um and where essences are nature. So the Aristotelian piece uh you know, there's this idea that somehow substantial forms or essences kept us from science because they're occult. You know, you can't, uh, through empiricism, you can't touch them and things like this. And so, you know, Hume and all these people threw them out. Well, they threw out the baby with the bathwater on that. And so what happens is you not only emptied the world of the dryads and the nymphs, which it rightly should have been emptied of, but you emptied it of meaning, you emptied it of essences, you emptied it of purpose, you emptied it um, uh, of teleology and all these things that I think what's so interesting today we speak of the, Arist- the Aristotelian comeback in philosophy and yeah. science, especially with quantum mechanics. Um, I'm, I'm actually, I, th- I think I mentioned this. You know, I'm doing this research fellowship here at Trinity this year, and I'm, I'm reading all the literature um, that is talking about the Aristotelian comeback. Where, man, they threw out some stuff that didn't need to go. And yeah. so I think you get everything you want in the in the scientific revolution. Um, But you didn't need to throw out things like purpose, order, design, and meaning, and that stuff got thrown out, too, eventually.
0: So so you probably are reading some of his work, I guess, right now in your studies, but I had to pull this quote up because I was just reading it the other day. Um, It is uh, Dr. Edward Fazer. Uh,
1: I'm reading his book right now. Go ahead. Which
0: one? Is it uh, Aristotle's Revenge? Yeah. yeah, I haven't read that one yet, so I'm looking yeah. back on his, uh, you know, maybe one of his first uh, big works, which was uh, The Last Superstition, which says, is um, a quote from uh, the book. I got the ebook; It's on location uh, 1080. Um, it says, abandoning Aristotelianism, as the founders of modern philosophy did, was the single greatest mistake ever made in the entire history of Western thought. And he Whoa. goes on to say, well, that was a big claim, but I really mean it. And so I've just gotten to that part of that book. I never read that book before. But, uh, yeah, the substantial forms and things like that seems to have been a huge mistake.
1: Yeah, and it's not like, I mean, you know, so I'm under, not all Christians are under this persuasion, but I happen to be under the persuasion that um, we need essences. We need natures to do work for us. I think that it secures objective meaning when it comes to uh, arguing for truth claims, I think in our theology we want natures for example we want to be able to say that jesus took on a human nature such that it's sufficient that he died in our place and so on yeah. um so i think it does explanatory work in philosophy and in science but we also want it for the things that we hold dear like you know our theology and our objectivity of truth and and things like that so yeah um, that's a pretty bold claim that he how he puts it <laughs> yeah well he, he do that <laughs> yeah he
0: tends to do that but uh, yeah. Yeah, he's a great uh, uh, writer so Though I better. love reading his stuff um, so I think the answer to the question was basically you know how you summed it up which was we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater sure there was some superstition um, in there uh, <clears throat> from the ancients and things like that but there's also a lot of wisdom that got thrown out with modern empiricism and scientism and uh, mechanism and nominalism to use the words out of your book mm-hmm. Um but, okay, now I want to get to the beauty question. So in the book, you talk about beauty, and I think uh, you guys did this in the uh, Apologetics book that I talked to Dr. Travis Dickinson about as well. But the, uh, the idea is that beauty is not in, merely in the eye of the beholder, but it actually is an objective feature of reality. How can you justify such a claim?
1: I would say just as there are physical facts... And, you know, I see your microphone there, and there's, it's the fact of the matter that you have a microphone there, and you're drinking water. Um, Maybe. There are no, also moral you. facts in the world, and they're part of the furniture of the world, like honesty is a virtue, and torturing babies for fun is wrong. Just as there are physical facts and moral facts, I would argue there are aesthetic facts as well. Okay. That there's objective beauty um, in humans, there's objective beauty in everyday beauty, even in a well-cut lawn. There's sacred beauty, so there's degrees of beauty and things like that, but it's an object, it's part of the furniture of the world. And so I would say beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is beheld by the eye, is how I would like to say it. So, it ta- so there is a subjective part, and the subjective part is that beauty is beheld by a perceiver, yeah. but there's the objective part that is part of the furniture of the world. It exists whether or not we are. It's still a fact that a sunset is beautiful. Yeah. Of course, it won't be beheld if there were no perceivers, but it would still be objectively beautiful or something like that. Does that help? or Yeah, helps? yeah.
0: Well, it helps. I'd like for it to be drawn out a little bit more. But let okay. me see if I can give kind of a definition, just working off what you're saying and now confirming that you've got this Aristotelian background a little bit. Yeah. It seems that uh, we say something is beautiful when that thing is um, nearing perfection of uh, what it is. So when the sun rises... Um, you know, that's perfective of the sun's nature. That's what it does. That it's, that's its purpose. Whenever you see a neatly cut lawn, there's something perfective of that or something, and I'm not wording it um, perfectly here. I'm just the student. You're the teacher. So what do you mean by uh, um, whenever we say that a thing is beautiful, what does it mean for a thing to be beautiful?
1: Well, see. Okay, good. So I like that you're pressing that because you're forcing me to make distinctions, which is helpful because that helps us be better thinkers. And so you already made a distinction between beauty itself and beautiful things, right? Okay. And so now you're pressing how, how is that thing over there? Beautiful? Yeah, I
0: guess that really is my question. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I love it. No, that's great because that's, that's really helpful. Um, you know, so first we make a distinction between beauty itself and beautiful things. And you know, the first claim was there is objective beauty, but now the question is, okay, fine. How do we know, or something like that? You know, um and I really like what Aquinas says on this. Actually, in the Summa, he, he so he we're looking for criteria to di- to uh, discern beautiful things. And there's been like eight or nine criteria that are proposed in the literature. I actually like what Aquinas says, though, and I uh, I could get it to you. And if you want to pass it on to your listeners, I can tell you where the quote is. But, uh, let me just summarize it right now. Where um he basically says beautiful things have these three. Um, features in them number one there's a kind of wholeness or perfection number two there's a right proportionality or harmony and then number three there's a kind of radiance Um, and what's so interesting about that if you walk through each one so wholeness you know when things are whole uh, it's just as it ought to be it's that perfection that you were talking about Um, and that produces in us um, this kind of peace right when things are as they ought to be and then proportionality, everything fits together just the way it's supposed to be, and that produces a kind of joy that we experience in community. And then radiance, like what you know, what does he mean? Beauty, beautiful things have a kind of radiance. Well, if you think about it, beauty, beauty communicates, and that's the kind of meaning behind what Aquinas is saying there. That it's, it's some people talk about how beauty is kind of like a personal conversation, communication, you know, where it either evokes this awakening of awe and wonder, or as it did for Judas, for example, in the Gospels, it, it, the other response was horror and actually killing the only two people that you love, yourself and your Savior. You know, and so that's what beauty does, right? It awakens within us this longing, so it's a kind of calling. So I think that those are criteria that are just as good as any, the ones that Aquinas proposes: wholeness, yeah. perfection, and then a kind of. Uh, awakening or calling to so us.
0: So do, do you come to this definition, or does Aquinas come to this definition, if you know, by observing things that pretty much everybody agrees are beautiful and then kind of abstracting some principles uh, out from that? Or, or or maybe what might be helpful is to take, take something that we all agree is beautiful and then kind of say, you know... You know, why is it beautiful? And if I just put you on the spot, we can edit this out. But, you know, take an example, if you can, of something that is beautiful and then kind of say why, objectively, why it's beautiful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that would be one way to go about it, right, is to um, all of us know without having criteria, we we know beauty when we see it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so, um, okay. So interesting. So we're going to push into a little more philosophy since you went there. Um, you know, there's this question in epistemology or, or in the philosophical discussion of knowledge, like how do you know things in general? Yeah. And there's a, a philosopher named Roderick Chisholm. Have you read any Chisholm yet?
0: No, no.
1: Okay. i so write him down though. Write it down. So it's called the problem of the criterion it is it's one of the most important essays I think in epistemology ever. So push, uh, you know, TJ, or JT, or whatever, uh, to make you read it or something. That um, is my
0: teacher. I'm studying epistemology right now. Yeah.
1: Well, then tell him <laughs> where is the problem of the and Tell him Paul said so. Um, anyway, so so Chisholm has us. He asks us, how how, how can we know? Um, do we first have a criteria, and then we can define what knowledge is, or do we just know what what thing? Do we know the things that we know, and then we develop our criteria? Chisholm argues that no, 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 we don't have a criteria for knowledge first. We just have knowledge, right? I just know things, and then once, and we take the clear cases and develop a criteria of knowledge. And I think we can apply that to what Aquinas is doing. You know, we take clear cases of beauty. And from that, we, we could just do like an inductive inference. Hey, what do these things all have in common? And so Aquinas proposed those three. Actually, the text that in the Summa where I think he's talking about this, if I remember, and I, I would have to go back and look, but I think he's talking about the Trinity, actually. Yeah. It's kind of interesting um, that that's where he's he kind of, as a side comment, throws out this criteria for beautiful things. But I, but I think that most people... Um, would just kind of set up a uh, look at beautiful things and say what are the features that they have in common, and that's why I said there's about eight things that have def- debated sure. symmetry, simplicity um, uh, are two other ones that are often thrown out there, um, and then now now there's a movement that against symmetry and it's asymmetry, you know, is the beautiful thing, and so I mean some of these are cultural. That's all I got. Yeah, so
0: no, that's that's good. Um, l- l- let's move on a little bit here to. Uh, how would you say that the gospel is beautiful? Um, you know, was, the other day I was on a, an, an atheist YouTube channel, got invited on, and uh, it, was, it was basically getting at the point that, uh, you know, being beaten and crucified on a cross um, wasn't that beautiful. That's not what he said, but that was kind of underlying his question that he was putting to me. Uh, you know, how can a story like that be beautiful?
1: Well, he's right that that part is tragedy, right? right? Um, but, of course, uh, the tragedy of the cross is answered with the divine comedy of the resurrection. And so if you take the whole story and it's, you know, narrative, it's, it is beautiful. I mean, let's take, since we were talking about it, let's take Aquinas' three criteria. Um, the gospel story, you know, it, it's, of all the competing stories out there, you know, the question that we need to every person needs to ask themselves is which one which of these stories understands you, you know, and I would argue that the gospel story understands the deepest longings of the human heart and it calls us to a life of meaning and purpose and and drama. Right. And and so so that so it's, it calls us in a way that I don't think any other, any other story does. Um, there's nothing missing from it. I mean, Alvin Plantinga, who you probably know the name, you know, Christian philosopher, important philosopher, he talks about not only, you know how we, so Anselm talked about God as the greatest conceivable being, and the idea was that God's not in fact the greatest being. I mean, he, he is the greatest being, but he's, he's more than that. He's the greatest conceivable being. You couldn't even imagine a being better. Well, Plantinga argues similarly that the gospel story is not just the greatest story ever told, but it's the greatest possible story that you could ever tell. Why? Because it has incarnation and atonement. So you could apply that to Aquinas's criteria for beauty and say, well, nothing's left out. It's the greatest possible story. And of course, it's a whole story, right? Because it begins with man's tragedy, but then it moves to the the divine comedy. You know, man's tragedy is sin, but the divine comedy, the unforeseen is that God became man. And then it's it's the unending fairy story, right? The happy ending that never ends. It's complete. It's whole. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know. That seems to me like
0: no, that's a great answer.:
1: that's a story.: so yeah, that's a- yeah.
0: yeah, OK, so moving uh, beyond uh, kind of the, the beauty and the aesthetic value, uh, l- l- you do actually give some rational arguments in the book, and uh, one of them that uh, isn't one that I've uh, studied much, but I, I think it actually ties back in with Plantinga, is uh, the argument from reason to God. Could you kind of uh, briefly you know lay out the argument from, uh, from reason?
1: Yeah. So one of the things I was doing in the book was walking and taking up my readers on the plank of reason, the plank of the conscience and the plank, the plank of the imagination to show these, you know, this bridge that we can build from our Athens to Jesus. And um, on the plank of reason, I was looking at reason itself, you know, like not not using reason, but the, the faculty, the power that we have to reason. And there's an argument that you can give from reason to god and it basically goes at least the way i I, you can cash out cash it out in a number of ways but the way I, i did it in the book was basically this hey given theism it's not really surprising that there would be minds but given atheism it's really surprising that minds would have you know evolved or whatever therefore probably god exists and the idea is um, as C.S. Lewis puts it, and I'm pulling a little, I'm pulling in the book there from C.S. Lewis's chapter, uh, chapter three in his book *Miracles*, where he says, you know what? Um, there's some. I, I love how he puts it. He basically says, if the world is just matter, like if there's nothing else to this world, you know, how do we get? It's really hard to get minds from purely matter. But if, as he puts it, capital R reason is older than matter, well, then you already have minds on the scene, right? You, mm-hmm. You've got capital M mind. And so we wouldn't be surprised that God would bring about a lowercase minds and things like that. And so that's basically what I'm doing. And the point is there's certain features about our mental life. And I I list four in the book um, that are really hard to account for in a strictly materialistic uh, metaphysics. And they would be things like the laws of logic or the fact that our mental life, it has what's called aboutness or intentionality, you know, no rocks have thoughts about London, but our minds have thoughts about London, and and things like that are really hard to account. Uh, and of course, philosophers try, right? Naturalistic yeah. philosophers try all the time, but I don't think they're they have any they've had any success. Um, whereas with theism, we have a real ready explanation for why we have the kind of mental life that we do, and so that's that's called the argument from reason. And again, I think it's a really it's not as well known, but it's a I think it's a pretty persuasive argument. and Part of what I wanted to do in the book was highlight some other arguments that aren't as well known that are just as powerful as the classic arguments that we see all the time.
0: Yeah, Well, thanks so much for coming on, uh, Dr. Gold. I really appreciate it. I don't want to keep you all night, but uh, we've had a wonderful conversation uh, here thus far, and I've really appreciated it and enjoyed it. And I hope the audience has too. I'm sure they have. Um, but to the audience, if you want to... Um, Here the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Dr. Paul Gould. Again, you can follow the Patreon link in the description below. Labeled support, help me believe and become a supporter if you're not already to watch the bonus segment. Uh, But before we get to the bonus segment, Dr. Gould, um, what would you say to uh, anyone out there who... um, you know, wants to engage the cultural, of, culture effectively with the gospel, as well as uh, uh, present its truthfulness and defend its rationality, that sort of stuff. Maybe uh, uh, you know, some final comments. What would you say to them?
1: Yeah, I mean, I say you know, maybe check out my book. Um, <laughs> of course, again,
0: there. it's in the it's in the description below. Of course.
1: Yeah, um, but if I could boil down all of what I'm trying to say in the book. Um, Are you convinced that the gospel is the only story alive, the only story that understands you, the only story in which you can locate your life and find true meaning, true happiness, true purpose, and be correctly related to reality? If you're convinced of that, well, then begin to see the world the way—and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And then I would just encourage you to invite others to do the same. So it begins with us. It begins with loving God with all of our being, as Jesus says in Matthew 22, and then inviting others to do the same. So maybe that would be a good summary of what I would hope.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks uh, again so much for joining me, and uh, uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Uh, But uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Hayden.
0: Thanks so much for joining us, guys. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review. And of course, if you want to become a supporter of Help Me Believe and get access to the bonus segment to watch five more minutes with Dr. Paul Gould, be sure to follow the Patreon link in the description below, labeled Support Help Me Believe, and become a patron. Thanks so much, guys, and uh, we'll see you next time.